Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to today's program on the Someone to Tell To podcast. If you are new to our community, welcome. We're delighted to have you join us today. We hope this can be a space for you along with everyone else where we feel seen, heard, known, and valued, which is so much of what Someone to Tell To's mission is all about. Today's episode is finally here, and we say that for a few reasons. First, Having to wait a few weeks in between episodes feels like forever, especially when we have such a distinguished guest in store. Second, this is the second recording of this episode. We so often say that technology is amazing until it isn't. Well, in January, it wasn't so amazing. We recorded the entire episode only to lose it. And then we went back and forth with Dr. Barry for several months to try and find a time to get her back on the program. Because she is such a distinguished person and personality, she is wanted by just about everybody, including The Daily Show host Trevor Noah, who gets referenced in this episode. But she finally found time in her schedule to rejoin us, and for that we are immensely grateful. In fact, we often feel as if things work out in the end. And we feel as if her conversation with us is more timely now than it was several months ago. Dr. Mary Frances Berry is something special. There are only a few times in a person's life, if you are lucky, to spend an hour with someone who has lived such a full and storied life. She has been an activist and a force to be reckoned with her whole life. She knew other illustrious folks like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., whom she calls Martin several times in the episode, which we think is hilarious and remarkable at the same time. She knew other prominent people of color like Nelson Mandela, Rosa Parks, and tennis great Arthur Ashe. For us, two white men who are continuing to learn more and more about issues of race, inequality, injustice, prejudice, and so much more, This was a helpful conversation for us. I know this is Tom, and I I recently finished the book uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and I'm in the process of reading another one, The Warmth of Other Sons. And both of those books have been informative and challenging and inspiring. And I know Michael just finished Arthur Ashe's autobiography, which he found to be very inspiring as well. And so we're always learning. This is one of those conversations we feel as if everyone, and we mean, mean it when we say it, that everyone should listen to it. So please subscribe to the Someone to Tell To podcast, give us an honest review, share the episode with others, and keep joining us every other week as we deep dive into matters of crucial importance, particularly listening to each other. In addition, to learn more about our nonprofit organization, please go to our website, someone2tellitto.org. Lastly, we are currently a part of another movement that is occurring via social media channels and beyond called Weaving Community. Weaving Community is a campaign celebrating acts of bravery, caring, and connection that heal the pain and weave the future we want. America and the world is hurting and broken in many ways but we can make it stronger by building relationships starting where we live. So go to weaving.us and help us make the world a more loving, kind, gentle, gracious place. So here we go. Enjoy. Dr. Mary Frances Berry, has been a Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and a Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania since 1987. She received her PhD in history from the University of Michigan and law degree from the University of Michigan Law School and a Bachelor of Arts degree from Howard University. She's the author of 12 books. Professor Berry has had a distinguished career in public service. From 1980 to 2004, she was a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, and from 1993 to 2004, served as the chair. Between 1977 and 1980, Dr. Berry served as the Assistant Secretary of Education in the United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, 
as it was called then. She has also served as provost of the University of Maryland and chancellor of the University of Colorado at Boulder, the first African-American woman to head a major research university. In recognition of her scholarship in public service, Professor Berry has received 35 honorary doctoral degrees and many awards, including the NAACP's Roy Wilkins Award, the Rosa Parks Award of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the Ebony Magazine Black Achievement Award. We warmly welcome you today, Dr. Berry, and thank you for being with us. We are so pleased to have you here. Well, thank you very much. And that, now I have 13 books because history teaches us to resist. History teaches us to resist is the latest one. And I think is uh, apt for the times in which we live. Thank you for sharing that. It's always good to know there are more and we appreciate that. I want to start with a question that we will be, we'll be really honest. You, um, we were thrilled to see you back in January as a guest on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. That was on Martin Luther King's birthday. Wow. And uh, to Connor is the one who, who told us that you were going to be on, our, our board member who is a student of yours. And uh, we so gladly tuned in. And I'll tell you, we just thought you were the coolest person for doing that oh, show. Oh, and thank for you. Humor and for, and for being on that with him. And so uh, what, was that, what was that like? And, and being on, the, on that show and, and talking with a young man who is from um, South Africa after you had also worked so hard in the anti-apartheid movement there. Well, I had fun with Trevor Noah. We became sort of like soulmates. Uh, he, he's, it's funny, when he first came in and we started talking before we went on the show, uh, I said, hello, colored boy, because at the time that he grew up in South Africa, people of mixed race like him were called colored boy. He knew what I was talking about. He laughed. Um, and it turned out that all the places that he had either lived or he had relatives like his grandmother and so on. I had actually been there <laughs> in the places I could envision myself uh, in those places. So we could talk about it, although since he's so much younger than me, he comes along later. Whereas my first time being in South Africa was in the 70s when I was in the Carter administration and then over and over and over again. And then he kept telling me that I look like Mandela's sister, which many South Africans tell me that anyway. Although when I was with Nelson, he never thought that, but <laughs> that's what they think. So it was fun. It was um, stress-free, and I thought funny and interesting at the same time. We're both huge fans of the show, and we both have read his, his, his biography, Born a Crime, and we just absolutely loved it and resonated uh, with so many of the messages. And we felt like his message is very timely for the times that we're in as well. And in fact, last summer, just about a year ago, he appeared uh, here in Hershey and uh, to an audience of you know, a couple thousand people. And we and our wives went, we all went together and just had a, we just laughed and laughed. Oh, and, okay. And his observations and, you know, his, his humor, both political and, and just observational about, about life in general and, and, and also his growing up in South Africa. It was, it was funny and poignant. And uh, we enjoyed it so much. Well, great. Well, one of the things that our mission at, here at Someone to Tell It To is all about listening to one another. And we want to start with this question about listening for you. Whose voices have you listened to throughout your life that have influenced you to be a teacher, an advocate, and a leader in the hard times and intense work of changing our world for the better? Well, most of the people that I've listened to, aside from the elders in my own family, um, when I was a child, I remember sitting around at night with the other children as they told stories to each other <laughs> about what you had to do to get ahead and what they had been through and this and that. Those were, uh, I was very impressed by all of that. But the other part is teachers teachers were very important and in particular every time I did a um, every time I um, uh, went from grade to grade there would be some teacher 
was really important until the time when I got to what they call now middle school. There was one teacher, and we sort of had an affinity. She was an English teacher because her name was Mary Frances, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it was Mary Frances Robinson. And uh, we got along really well. And then when I was in high school, my favorite teacher was a woman named Minerva Hawkins, who was a history teacher. And one of the things she told me was that you should not be a historian because historians don't make any money. (laughs) And what you should do is major in science. That's what she told me. So what I did is I didn't want to major in science. But she told me, when you go to college, you major in science. I said, but I like history. She said, ah, you can read history. (laughs) Go major in science. Maybe you'll get a job. So I majored in chemistry. But then after I had done chemistry, and she and I stayed in touch over the years, and she always gave me advice and counsel. And until her death, years later, she was, I would say, my best friend. Um, And I majored in chemistry. She liked that. But then I never told her. But after I finished organic chemistry, going through all the chemistries, and after I finished the math and all that stuff and the biology, I changed my major. And I changed it because I was sick of it. And I wanted to do something else. And I had a philosophy course. And by the way, I was in philosophy courses at Howard with uh, um, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, uh, other people who were Cortland Cox who were in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during the Civil Rights Movement. We were all philosophy majors. I figured I could major in philosophy. It wasn't history, so I wasn't really lying to her. <laughs> but then I loved uh, philosophy, especially uh, logic. And after I finished and decided to go to graduate school in history, I finally told her, that I thought I would be able to make a living somehow being a historian because that's what I loved. And for the rest of my life, she remained a voice I listened to. When I was in the um, uh, government and had bunch big fights with uh, President Reagan, Ronald Reagan, over civil rights, and he ended up you know, firing me for opposing him, she said, she sent me a note, I remember, she said, remember Mary Frances, when you're in the limelight, you make a good target. And that's all she said. But anyway, there were people, many people who were influential and important, but those are among the ones uh, that were. Well, you just have lived such a storied life. And the more we spent time researching and just learning more about your life, I mean, one of our favorite things to do is literally just to listen to people's stories. And that's why we founded someone to tell it to you, because we realized there's a whole world of people starving to be heard. And especially those who are of color uh, who have not been heard. And so I maybe wanted to ask just a follow up question to that is, do you feel as if your voice has been heard throughout your life? Well, I don't think my voice has been heard uh, throughout my life uh, or if it has been heard it hasn't always been to my advantage. For example, when I was in, uh, when I was in high school, uh, we were reading uh, something, I've forgotten, and in the book, it was a French writer, and it was in English, though, and, but the people kept, the kids kept calling themselves comrade, which, of course, in French just means your friend and comrade, and it was during the McCarthy era in this country. And one of the teachers heard us calling each other comrade and she thought somehow we had been influenced by communists. (laughs) So she heard us, but she didn't really hear us. And the next thing I knew, some guy came to talk to me and said, I from from the government. What do you mean by calling people comrade? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) And I told him that we were reading this book and it was great, you know, and these people were calling each other comrade. And he just laughed and then he left. But as I said, voice was heard. Later on, when I was involved in uh, political work, I find myself, I have found myself mostly in opposition to whatever is the prevailing um, narrative that is going on in the country. 
So I have had to find ways to sort of influence decisions by making my voice heard by networks of people, whether they're reporters or whether they're friends or whether they're people who can get the word out and being aggressive about making it known myself, but not being concerned about retribution because retribution will fall upon you. After we finished recording this interview and its accompanying introduction, Congressman, an iconic civil rights activist and hero, John Lewis of Atlanta, Georgia, passed away at age 80. Congressman Lewis has said this, We are one people with one family. We all live in the same house. And through books, through information, we must find a way to say to people that we must lay down the burden of hate, for hate is too heavy a burden to bear. He was absolutely right. Hate is too heavy a burden to bear. We are one human family. John Lewis, along with our guest today, Dr. Mary Frances Berry, was a towering moral authority, the conscience of the United States Congress, as so many have called him. His passing saddens us and an entire nation. His legacy is profound. We are grateful for his goodness, his courage in the face of violence and extreme physical harm, and the legacy he is leaving as we strive for a better, fairer, and more just world. We offer our deepest condolences to his family and those who knew and love him. We know that his moral authority will always live on. Right now, to no one's surprise, we are in a very turbulent time, both with the COVID pandemic, economic downturn, and now the, the racial issues that uh, you know, are just throughout our country and the protests and the demonstrations. Do, yesterday in the New York Times, uh, there was an article that was entitled something about the fact that this time, in essence, this time it's different. The feeling that the, the demonstrations and the protests are, are so widespread and that there were, were between 17 and 26 million people who they have estimated have participated in demonstrations uh, since this all began. Do you think this time is different? I mean, you know, all the protests that have gone on over the last 50, 60 more years, uh, change has happened, but there's still so much to be done. Do you see a difference with what's happening today? Well, on the race issue, there is still in our country and in the world, the prevalence of white supremacy as a given which has not been eroded by the various civil rights laws and all the changes we've made in a positive direction. There have been changes in a negative <laughs> direction. So that we end up with white supremacy, which was ingrained in law and culture in the earliest history of the country, still being, uh, um, having an oppressive effect in the society, no matter what happens. Um, uh, Martin Luther King thought that, uh, he, well, he didn't really think it, but he said it because Coretta, his wife, told me that, uh, of course, Martin knew better, but he was trying to argue for the vote. And in a speech he gave in 1957, uh, in his first coming out as a public figure in Washington at an event, he said that if we ever get the ballot, if we ever get the vote, all of our problems will be solved. <laughs> we get the vote, we'll have great judges and we'll have the rule of law. He talked about all these great things that were going to happen when we get the ballot. And I said to Coretta, I said, now, of course, we didn't get them. She said, he knew too that we wouldn't uh, get them, but he, we needed the ballot. We did need the ballot. And he was trying to make sure we got voting rights. Well, um, we got the ballot. Uh, we had civil rights movement. Every time there's a movement of some kind, there's a response. But the response never gets at the heart of the problem. Maybe it's not possible to get, I don't know. 
but it never gets at the heart of the problem. Usually what happens, because we have a democracy, a Republican form of government and uh, democratic principles, is that we get some kind of compromise or something, and then people run out of energy and, and they go on to something else and there's a diversion. My book, History Teaches Us to Resist, is about that about the various movements and how some of them succeeded in what they were doing, but they didn't really change the overrating uh, narrative, or, and how some failed, okay? Now, so in this country, what you have is laws on the books that very often aren't enforced. And the history from all the reports I did at the Civil Rights Commission and all the studies and everything, Cardinal Report, you know, report after report after report, is that they mostly are not enforced in the way that the people recommended that they should be enforced. So we have this persistent problem. Now we have the issue of the police uh, as a catalyst and we have responses. But if you look at the responses, anyone who has studied this can tell you that they won't solve the problem. The problem of police abuse of unarmed blacks will not be solved by having video cameras. How do we know this? We should have video cameras to be sure, but it's not gonna solve the problem because there were video cameras in some of the incidents that occurred where people were killed and they got killed anyway. Uh, and in some cases, like in the Floyd case and in Eric Garner, the police officer who abused the person saw the cameras on them while they were abusing the person. It's okay to have cameras, but what happens is that politicians want to appear to solve the problem, and they then pass legislation, which is nice, but they know it's not really going to solve the problem until you get the heart of it is that how are black people seen, how are they to be treated, what do we think about inequality in our society, whether it's class or race or whatever? So is this time different? What's different about this time is that we have social media. And social media, compared to the 1960s and some of the earlier uh, episodes, permits you to get in touch with a whole bunch of people <laughs> all at once and to stay in touch and to express yourself. It also makes it possible for you to be kept under surveillance. See, we have to keep that in mind as you go about all these different things that you're doing. But the world, the internet, makes it possible to connect all over the world. So everybody all over the world sees at the same time that all these things are happening over and over and over and over and over and over again. And young people watch mainly video of that type. They, young people don't watch the evening news every night at the same time and have dinner. <laughs> they don't do any of that. There's a whole different way of doing this. So the connections are there. Uh, so now we have COVID. Now we have economic uh, crisis, an economic crisis in our country and the world. People are not in school. They haven't been in school. Even when they were supposed to be in school, they weren't. <laughs> in school because it was online and so who knew they were supposed to listen to recordings or something which nobody wanted to do unless they you know, were forced to and you couldn't force them. So now what we have is anybody who has a household who has young people in it who tries to force them to go do something knows what I mean. I'm raising my hand on that one. <laughs> we have four, four small kids at home. <laughs> right, you're going to make the kids sit down and you're going to be there for an hour or whatever. Good luck with that. Okay. Now, after a while. In any case, and even adults get bored after a while and want to go for a drive or go for a drink or something or stand out in the street. So, in fact, we have a lot of time for people to protest, a lot of time for people to analyze and to show their experience and to gather together to do all these things. And that is why the protest, in my, in my view, is taking on a going on longer. And politicians are mistaken if they think that by passing some specific piece of legislation or something, they're going to make it all stop and go away. And as one of them told me, what we want to do is move on. We want to move on now 
And I've had reporters calling me the last few days saying, am I ready to call for reconciliation? Like in South Africa, we can have a commission. <laughs> and the commission could say, mm -hmm. let's all us reconcile and let us go on our way. And I say, well, good luck with that. And in South Africa, the problems were not solved either. We've got to continue working at them. We will, I don't even think the election, if we get that far, uh, will do anything to solve it because so many people are distrustful of the political system. And I don't know anyone who's really eager about you know, what the outcome might be. There's no love lost. Uh, on nobody's running and raving and saying, I gotta go out and get, you know, whoever it is <laughs> that's running. So we'll see. One of the leadership characteristics that we see as being invaluable just in general is empathy. Uh, we, we sometimes feel as if there's just not enough empathy in the world. And an author and a researcher like yourself that we quote often, her name is Dr. Brene Brown, if you've ever heard of her. Yeah. Uh, and she's recently talked about empathy and she said, in order to empathize with someone's experience, you must be willing to believe them as they see it and not how you imagine their experience to be. And you had referenced social media and based on our, you know, just scrolling the walls of social media, we think that we have a lot of work to do in our country and our world when it comes to empathy, especially with racial injustice. And what insights have you gained, particularly when speaking to white audiences about empathy? Um, I think that um, people, what people express in an audience setting and when they ask questions and when we have discussion, when I've gone out, when I go out to speak places, sometimes they don't really express what they really think. It's just like when people answer polls, which I never answer, but some people do, I guess. They never ask me, so I don't know that's why I never <laughs> answer. But anyway, uh, they say, well, I'm not telling that pollster what I think because why do I tell them what I really think? So that means you can't figure out what they think, you know, which is not a good, but you can't keep them from doing it. It's a distortion. Um, some people can put themselves in the other person's shoes, which is what empathy is, seeing it from that person's perspective. And other people cannot. As I had a young protege of mine uh, tell me a few days ago, a white woman who I've known since she was an undergraduate and she's now a lawyer that she was out dis discussing with friends about what happened with George Floyd and all the different things that have happened. And these are people who consider themselves white liberals or progressives. And once she finished, they said, well, yes, but you know, he was doing something illegal. He had a um, uh, counter counterfeit bill. If he hadn't been doing anything illegal, then he wouldn't have been in a problem. So he was committing a crime. And so the answer is that people have stopped. Eric Garner was selling loose cigarettes, which was a crime. Uh, if these people were not vulnerable by being uh, committing crimes, then you know the outcome. I could feel better about them. They said, and I don't feel great about them dying, but I can see where they could have avoided the encounter with the police altogether if they had not. And then when she tried to explain the situation these people live in, you know, what options do they have and what has happened to them, they couldn't empathize with that so much. It was, well, we know, we see signs on the McDonald's that they're hiring. So why don't they go work there or whatever? But they considered themselves liberals and progressives, but they could not put themselves in the other person's shoes. Uh, a friend of mine has a, a sign in her window that says, do you care more about your property than you do about doing something that might cause a black person to lose their life? And she's talking about people who call for little property. You know, they saw some stranger walking up street and they call the police and then it ends up in an altercation. Uh, and she's, some people have taken umbrage <laughs> at, 
at that as a distorted kind of question, uh, false dichotomy, because people should not uh, walk up to your door um, and they should call the police if they walk up to your door, even though they don't know why you're walking up to their door. You just are somebody they're not accustomed to seeing in the neighborhood. So if we had empathy, I think if we had two things, if we had more empathy, more willingness to listen and to see and to put yourself in other people's shoes, that might help us. The other thing is that if we had more people willing to explore and investigate and to remember how things are supposed to work, we wouldn't be caught up in whatever the media tells us, whether it's true or false, the headline, I mean, whatever it says, we all go running off <laughs> because it said this or said that or the other. I just read this morning a public health official who was saying that she didn't know why the national government didn't just announce that uh, we must all do all these different things immediately in every state in the United States, and we should open all the schools or close all the schools until the virus is over. And that why didn't the you know somebody in the national government, the president or a general from the Pentagon or somebody, <laughs> announce that that's what everybody in the United States is supposed to do? And I thought to myself, here's an example of a person who is very well educated who doesn't know, never read the Constitution doesn't know that the national government can't go around ordering everybody in every state <laughs> to do X, Y, Z. And it would be a simple matter just picking up the Constitution <laughs> and looking at it or when you read something. And then I remembered how many times I've heard that same formulation over and over again in the media. And it frustrates people when I talk with them because they, they don't know this. They say, well, we're frustrated because we don't know why the national government doesn't do that if you explored and if you knew something and if we taught civics maybe uh and if you had some empathy too and you added those two together we might get somewhere we agree that we absolutely <laughs> agree to that and you know empathy is one of the concepts that we talk about all the time we write about it we talk about it we hope we're living it imperfectly certainly but we are certainly trying to model it for people and, and how important empathy, how important it is, putting ourselves in other person's shoes in their place, seeing it from their perspective. It's not easy, there's no doubt, but no, uh, we, we do believe that is an answer. That is a, a huge part of the answer here, as well as the education that you're talking about too, with the constitution and especially in, in matters that are, that are going on today. You have um, also said, written, that uh, when people have a moral authority, they need to use it. Could you describe, would you describe to us what you believe moral authority is and how you believe it can best be used? If you model um, taking a position that promotes empathy, <laughs> that promotes analysis, and that promotes courage, in confronting attacks on other people or things that harm other people. And if you're courageous about it, okay, no matter what the cost is to you personally, then from that evolves moral authority. You have the moral authority to speak to others about whatever it is because you're modeling it, okay? If you're not modeling it and all you're doing is just mouthing a bunch of stuff, <laughs> I mean, as an exemplar of all of that, um, Martin Luther King modeled what he was up to. Uh, not just him, Rosa Parks for years modeled what she was up to, not just sitting down on the bus, but for years after that when I saw her in various causes. I first met her at a conference in, uh, in, um, in Detroit after the 1967 Detroit riots when she was in there uh, taking notes and talking to people and trying to figure out whether there was something she could help with doing. Um, and then later she came to the Free South Africa Movement and got up and made a public speech. The first time I ever heard her make a public speech. <laughs> she came and thought she was just there to be a symbol. And we said, no, make a speech. 
She said, make a speech? I said, yeah. <laughs> she did. But these people are symbolic um, of that. All those years that Coretta, after Martin uh, was assassinated, went around uh, promoting uh, the principle of nonviolence and the principles for what he stood. People don't understand the role that she played and how important it was, both in public and behind the scenes. So uh, it doesn't mean that you're always right. Just because you are committed and you're courageous, you may be wrong about something <laughs> sometimes, but you should do the best you can do according to your own analysis and view of things. Um, and I'll give you another example. Uh, recently, there was, a day before yesterday or sometime, a story in the press about uh, people signing a statement uh, attacking cancel culture, or that they call it. Um, uh, and there were people attacking the people <laughs> who were attacking cancel culture. And there were a group of scholars and, and luminaries and public figures and celebrities who were all saying, you know, we have to get beyond this business of suppressing expression and all the rest of it. Um, and they were attacked. Well, um, I think that being willing to say courageously that there ought to be freedom of expression is important and you should expect to get attacked <laughs> when you say it. Uh, it's like the guy that runs Facebook, whose name I forget. Who's the guy who owns Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg, uh, who I've never been able to figure out, he values, according to the people who work for him, freedom of expression above other values. Now, you can argue with that and say, I believe that the value of something else, religion or whatever it is you believe, patriotism or whatever. but that is having, even though he's a billionaire, he's a billionaire with a certain amount of moral authority. <laughs> and he'll, I guess a billionaire can have <laughs> Because he seems to stand we'll, no we'll matter never what, know in this lifetime. What did you say? You never know in this <laughs> we'll lifetime? We'll never know in this lifetime. No, we'll never know. But <laughs> even though, you know, even though he's got all that money, um, when he says, well, you know, I just can't figure out anything to be for except freedom of expression. Now, I would be disappointed, even though part of me would like him to do it for the people who are concerned about the issues. If he tomorrow said, well, because all these people are boycotting my company, <laughs> I've now decided, hey, freedom of expression is not all that great. <laughs> and we're going to move on. <laughs> I don't think I would like that. Moral authority doesn't always mean that you have to be for what I'm for. Hi, I'm Sharon. And I'm Pensy. We are volunteers at Wonders Found Thrift Shop and proud sponsors of the Someone to Tell It To podcasts. Wonders Found is a totally volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We also support local missions and people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, mountcalvaryumc.org backslash wonders found, or stop in to see what wonders you will find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard. God bless. You had mentioned just a moment ago about Martin Luther King, and I know there's always quotes that are floating around social media that we all can connect with. Uh, and one that we've read recently uh, as a statement that he said, where our lives begin the end, begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. And uh, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about this tension that we sometimes feel in our listening work about listening and truly trying to hear both sides, but then also about not being silent about the things that matter? Well, you must, well, as I understand what Martin Luther King believed, um, is that, and I get this all from many years of 
conversations with Coretta. Um, and sometimes I call him Martin just because I'm used to talking with her saying Martin and Martin. I don't mean I can say Dr. Martin Luther King, but it's not meant disrespectfully. It's just something I do because of that. But um, what he meant by that is that um, you should listen, be willing to hear, and try, try putting your yourself in the other person's shoes to listen to them and see where they're coming from. But if you believe principally that something is the value that we ought to adhere to, you should explain it and continue to support it and continue to promote it no matter what. So you're listening and you're taking into account what others have to say doesn't mean you abandon your beliefs. Now, I have always found something interesting and new when I listen to people, either in the way they present it, or they say something I hadn't thought of, <laughs> or whatever. It gives me pause so I can think it through and try to figure it all out. And I like that because I like testing what I think. I like challenging the challenge to what I think over and over again, because firmly held values are too important not to have that testing and not to have that challenging over and over again. Michael, I'm thinking of one of our team members who, who just pu is publishing yeah. our blog that's going to go up on our site. And I wonder I if you can tell the same, I was thinking the same thing. Go ahead. Go ahead with that. Well, you'll tell better than I will probably. But anyways, long story short is one of our team members has had a, a history of going to Gettysburg year in and year out around July 4th with uh, some close friends of hers. And they camp. And they've done this for like 15 years or more. And it just so happens, I don't know if you had seen this in the news, but there was a lot of protesting happening at, in Gettysburg uh, over the holiday weekend. And it just so happens that she probably sees certain issues differently than most of the protesters there. And she initially wanted to just kind of remove herself from it and not, not wanting to be a part of it at all uh, because she was so frustrated by it all. But then she actually went out of her way to engage somebody in conversation who happens to be on this other side politically. And she was able to hear this. It happened to be he, his perspective and, and the life that he's been, been living. And she heard about all of this brokenness and pain that this man has gone through in his life. And so he's, he's got a very jaded look at the world. But it, when you're able to really take the time to get to know him better, you there was a, at least a little bit more of an understanding of why he was responding the way that he was. And, and that doesn't make, make his actions or anyone's actions right if they're causing harm to somebody else. But it was at least it gave her, you know, a very different perspective change, I think. And, right. and she was able to respond with, with some sense of compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. Even though it, it didn't change her mind and she didn't agree with the stances he was taking politically, socially. But it, it gave her an insight by her listening. And she said it was hard. It was it was hard sometimes, not to not to speak out, not to speak up, not to challenge him, you know, negative, you know, very negatively. But it she felt good about the fact that she was able to take the time and hear him, and that she believed that he felt good, that he was heard, that somebody listened to his struggles and his pain, and at least tried to see see some things from his perspective. Well, I think and that's great. So do we. we. We believe, I mean, one of our values here with some of the Teletu is that we believe that we have something to learn from every single person we encounter, that everyone we listen to can have something to teach us and to show us. It, again, it doesn't mean we always, we have to agree with their decisions or their perspectives, but we can learn and it helps us to understand just a little bit better. Well, if there's anything I hope this does help in that experience you just described. But one of the things, among the things that bother me so much 
last few years is the great polarization in our society. And everyone talks about how polarized we are. But most of the uh, people who have the position to voice something that might help it add to the polarization <laughs> rather than diminishing it right. by criticizing people without hearing them, mm -hmm. without being unwilling to argue with them, uh, and uh, just dismissing them, you know, as, well, this is unacceptable. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And then they turn around and say, well, we don't know why there's such polarization. <laughs> well, obviously, and they do not, the people I'm talking about who do this, don't want their own views tested. They don't want to put their views up for grabs for the people who are on the other side to challenge them and then explain why they want to do it. Take the thing about the monuments and the statues and taking them down mm -hmm. and debating that. I first had the view some years ago and wrote a piece in the New York Times about it that uh, we should not uh, take George Washington's name off a school down in New Orleans, where, which was being protested, because he was the father of the country. And even though he owned slaves, he freed them when he, you know, that when he, um, uh, before he died. And, and, but anyway, he was the father of the country. <laughs> so he did some good things and some bad things. And he was a man of his times. And so why not just explain what he did? I was in the explain what people did school at that time, put a little plaque there, you know, explain the whole thing. Mm. And I was uh, attacked by some people at the school who were involved and said, you don't live here, don't tell us what to do, which was fine. <laughs> uh, I accept that. But now I'm beginning to wonder if that's enough and if what you ought to do is take things down and put something else up and then put a plaque too. Well, they've done that in some places in New Orleans, where down where they used to sell slaves at the uh, market in certain places. They put up something else, and then they explain all the things that happened. So if you stand there, you can read it, and you can see, well, this used to be where X was. And maybe that's it. But people can have a reasonable debate on all sides of that argument about what do you do about Thomas Jefferson and what do you do about Benjamin Franklin? You know, what do you do about Andrew, uh, Alexander Hamilton? But to just dismiss whatever side you're on, the other person's point of view, without even listening. And then yeah. you say, well, I don't know why we're so polarized around this issue. Mm -hmm. It's in part because you refuse to listen to the other person's point of view. We have a, a donor and a supporter of someone to tell to, and, and it so happens that she's white and she has some kids that are of color. And I think I'm assuming they were adopted, but she has recently posted uh, a, a statement on, on social media that we really appreciated. And it was a statement that said, if a black person tells you that a phrase is offensive to them, then it is end of story. It is not up for you, up to you as a white person to tell them that it's not instead Educate yourself as to why the phrase is offensive and stop using it. We so often talk about our friendship, Michael and I, and our relationship together as being a catalyst for this compassionate listening movement of which we are fostering here at Someone to Tell To. And in our relationship with each other and with our spouses and with other close friends, we've learned that if there's something that is harmful to your friend, then it is our job and our responsibility to stop it, to work towards unity, which means considering others' needs ahead of your own, which we talked about empathy. So the question for you is, why do you think people, first off, have such a difficult time understanding this concept, and then second, actually implementing it in their relationship with others? Well, on the, well, it's hard to do it on any question, but on the race question, it's hard because people are so accustomed to, look, most white people are accustomed to being in positions um, in the status hierarchy above most black people. I mean, it's just true. Uh, when you were saying that, I recall that um, a, a faculty member said something to me and I said, I think a white faculty member, I said, I find that comment racist and offensive. And instead of 
saying something else or modifying the comment, the person just repeated the same statement again. <laughs> and I said, what is it about my not speaking English? <laughs> you said something. I said, I found that statement racist and offensive. And rather than you modifying the statement some way or standing there for a minute and figuring out what was it I said, you just repeat the same <laughs> statement to me. I don't know what I'm supposed to take away from your doing that, except that you don't see me as a person who you should attend to when I say something, like listen to me or hear that I said something, because I know I spoke English. I'm sure of it. And the person was quite taken aback and said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not, well, I don't know what racism is then, if that's racist for me just to repeat. I said, you didn't even listen or analyze for a minute what I said. You just repeated it <laughs> all over again as if I were to take it. That's a power relationship, psychologically power relationship that is being expressed and is a manifestation of a long endured notion without the person being maybe conscious of it, of white supremacy in encountering people like that. I have observed the person in other settings and I have observed, observed other people saying things in a meeting or something, uh, which the person didn't agree with, but they never just repeated back to them exactly what they said. <laughs> as if I said that and now I'll just say it again. <laughs> and that's no way uh, to do anything. If the person finds it offensive, then find some other way to say it or just say, well, I'm sorry, and then, you know, move on. You know, we realize that we're never going to please everybody, but nevertheless, that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop trying. Absolutely. Um, you know, our job is to always, as much as humanly possible, to consider other people's needs ahead of our own needs, to put other people's, I mean, that's the golden rule. So. Yeah. I know that uh, we know that our, our time is, is running short and you have other commitments soon. And there's one thing I want to I, I want to share. Tom knows about this. I um, had been given for Christmas uh, a book, uh, a biography of the life of the tennis player, Arthur Ashe. Oh, yes. And um, we know, we know. That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. Um, one, one, even, one night, I often would read before I would fall asleep each night. And, and one night I was reading and, and then really came across a section in the book with pictures in it. And there was a picture of you. Really? With Arthur Ashe huh. um, in front of the White House. Mm -hmm. We were protesting about the Haitians. That's exactly it. Was it was the last protest that Arthur was involved in. Yes. We loved seeing him so much that time before he passed. So that was that was the last one. Yeah. So we uh, we also thought that was pretty cool of you <laughs> because we we admire him. We, we like tennis. Oh, We've yes. been in the Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York City uh, together. Yeah. And we were just, and just his story is also so impressive how he became an activist and spoke out for people who were marginalized and, and hurting and appreciated that so much. And, and to see you there with him was pretty, was pretty neat. I, I remember I took a picture of it and, and texted it to Tom and to our friend and board member, Connor, your student, uh -huh. uh, as well as say, look who I just saw, who I'm reading about, you know, and there. And she's going to be on our podcast. Podcast. We were, yeah, we were right. I don't know if I've seen that picture. Well, we will make sure you get that. Um, yeah, because I loved Arthur. He uh, he was one of the sweetest, most gentle. Uh, talk about somebody having moral authority. Mm. Yes, yes. Arthur was quintessentially a person with Martha, and we just I loved him, and so um, and it was so sad what happened with him but i never saw the picture we will make sure you get it and there's also he wrote about it then too a little bit later in the book there was a, a story about that where he mentioned you so oh um, i don't know anything about it well um we'll make sure you see it yeah all right i appreciate that could you do us a favor before we close out our time together we we needed to to have you share this story because connor our our board member and and your student had told us this story that you had told him and, and their class at, at Penn about the, the Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and 
and they were preparing to open in 2016 and you had been asked to donate your dining room table to the museum. Could oh, you just yeah. tell us why you received that invitation and what, what was your response? Well, they, I had been working on trying to get a museum on the mall for years with another group of people who were employees, black employees at the Smithsonian. And Lonnie Bunch, who ended up being the director of that museum and who's now head of the whole Smithsonian, the first black guy, was part of our early group that we worked on that issue. So that's one aspect of it. And I was on the Smithsonian Board of uh, Advisors for years. Um, and I kept trying to get them to agree to put a museum <laughs> on the mall. And they uh, refused. Uh, the arguments they kept telling me was that there no, was no space on the mall. <laughs> And oh. so we went out and walked up and down the mall to find space. You There's know, a lot of room there. <laughs> and they got really angry at me because I kept raising the issue during my <laughs> terms, two terms on the, on the board. That's part of the story. The other part of it is that the Free South Africa movement to end apartheid in South Africa and free Nelson and all the prisoners and get sanctions from this country um, was organized by a group of us. Uh, Randall Robinson, Sylvia Hill, um, 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 Bill Lucy, and Roger Wilkins. And we met every day during the week at my house here in Washington for a year and a half in the morning to plan the day's activities. <laughs> and the dining room table that you're referring to was in my dining room all that time. And part of the time we sat there, other times we sat in the living room, they wandered all over my house all the time. And that's what we did. And that was the, um, the, the table. And Lonnie Bunch knew that. And so we, he was talking about me giving the table to the Smithsonian. They were going to set up some kind of exhibit on the Free South Africa movement, which was one of the successful movements that I write about in History Teaches Us to Resist. And... The short, the story is, I told them no. I said, I'm still eating on the table. I'm not, <laughs> you know, when I'm no longer eating on it, you can have the table. And that was the story. Well, we like that story. You have some moral authority too, because you can just say no. Oh, yeah, it. I learned how to say no. Yes. <laughs> well, I enjoyed being with you, but um, I'm afraid we're coming to the end of our time. Yeah, it, we just... I'd like to do one last thing, and this will take maybe 30 seconds that we do with all of our guests. Uh, we call it rapid fire questions, and we're just going to throw a couple questions your way, and the first thing that pops into your head, just respond. So the first question is, what's giving you hope right now? Um, that I am able to connect with former students, friends, family over the internet, even though I can't see them in person. Great. And this may be a, this a follow-up to that, uh, but what brings you joy right now? What brings me joy is um, being able to talk and encounter with people and realize that no one in my particular circle yet has gotten the COVID. So I'm very pleased about that. What's something that you hope to see happen before your life comes to an end here on I Earth? Schools open again. <laughs> yes we all hope that too yeah well dr dr barry we're so grateful so mm -hmm. grateful for your time for your wisdom your history your stories and uh the moral authority that you have and that has helped to help to move this world this this country and this world forward we appreciate you and your time so much all right thank you very much for having me bye We really loved this episode. We felt so privileged to be able to have this dialogue with Dr. Barry. We're so grateful for it. We're so grateful for her, for the wisdom and the experience that she brings uh, to the world and that she brought to the Someone to Tell It To podcast today. For us who are continuing to learn more about issues of race, inequality, injustice, prejudice, and so much more, this really was a helpful conversation for us. This is one of those conversations we feel as if everyone, and we mean it when we say it, that everyone should listen to. So we invite you to share it with your friends if you've liked it. We invite you to, to subscribe to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. 
give us an honest review. Share the episode, as we, as we said, and, and keep joining us every other week as we take deep dives into matters of crucial importance, particularly listening to one another. And we hope that you can support us, too. Go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com to support us with a one-time gift or even better, with a, a recurring gift every month. And if you do, there, there'll be some special gifts that, that we can offer you, and, and we hope that you will seriously consider that. In addition, to learn more about our nonprofit organization, we hope that you'll go to our website, someonetotellitu.org. And last, we are also currently part of another movement that is occurring via social media channels and beyond called Weaving Community. Weaving Community is a campaign celebrating acts of bravery, caring, and connection that heal the pain and weave the future we want for this world. America and the rest of the world is hurting and broken in so many ways right now. But we believe that together we can make it stronger by building relationships starting where we live in our own communities. So go to weaving.us and help us to make the world a more loving, kind, gentle, gracious place. Thank you for joining us. Until we listen again.